0: April 2019, and this is episode 110. On today's programme, Professor Peter Stanley from the University of New South Wales talks about his latest book on British territorials in India during the Great War. This is published by Helium. I spoke to Peter from his home in Australia. Peter, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. We're going to talk about your latest book on British territorial soldiers in India during the Great War. Before we commence, can you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War?
1: Well, in a sense, I suppose I've always been interested in the, in the First World War. Um, I used to work at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. Uh, I worked there from 1980 to 2013 and became its principal historian. And of course, I focused very much on Australian military history and on the two world wars. But my real love is British India, and this book enables me to combine that interest. And since I joined the University of New South Wales, Canberra, uh, as a research professor in 2013, I've been able to devote myself to uh, researching uh, India, and I've done a couple of books on, on India and the Great War.
0: So why do you think a book is necessary on the territorials in India during the First World War?
1: I didn't even know, really, that there were territorials in India until I went to India in 2012. I was looking to research a book on the anglo Sikh Wars of the 1840s. So I was visiting British military cantonments in the Punjab, and I was in the cemetery at Peros and I realised that there were all of these graves with Commonwealth War Graves Commission stickers on them, and thought, hang on, what are they doing here? And, of course, looking at the inscriptions, I saw Hampshire cyclists and uh, Dorset artillerymen and uh, Somerset infantrymen and realised that there would have been not just regulars in India, but territorials. And I thought, Ooh, hang on, nobody's done anything on that. And the more I looked into it, the more uh, immersed I became in the story.
0: So... Before we get into the detail, who or what were the Territorials?
1: The, the Territorial Force was formed in 1907 uh, by Edward Haldane, the, the uh, Secretary of State for War. And the idea was, was that Britain had uh, a series of, of mismatched and often disorganised uh, and ill-trained auxiliary forces, uh, the militia, the yeomanry and the volunteers. And Haldane's genius was to see that, in fact, they they could be reformed and amalgamated and systematized to form a sort of second line to to reinforce and support the regular army, and especially to defend Britain in the case of invasion. And at first, the the regular army was pretty skeptical that, that these amateurs would be able to do the job properly, Um, And lots of civilians were were pretty skeptical as well. So they became known by a series of pretty derisory nicknames. Uh, They were called Saturday Night Soldiers, for example, because they often trained in their new drill halls on Saturday night, and and they would go off for weekend camps. But by the time the First World War came around, there was a couple of hundred thousand territorial troops, and they really did become the core of the expansion of the British Army. So uh, the territorials, which had, had gone from being a bit of a joke, uh, turned out to be an absolutely invaluable interior asset.
0: So what was the scale of their deployment to India, and what was their purpose um, in being de- deployed to the subcontinent?
1: Well, here we, we have to introduce Lord Kitchener, Secretary of State for War. And Kitchener realised, probably was the first person to realise at the very outset of the war, that this war would consume amounts of men and would go on for a lot longer than anyone ever imagined. And Kitchener realized, of course, that the Western Front would be the the crucial theater and was appalled to to further realize that about half the British Army was not available to serve on the Western Front. A good proportion of it, about 50 odd battalions, was in India. So Kitchener realized that he needed those regular troops on the Western Front. But how could they be replaced? And Kitchener basically approached the territorial army's Divisional Command and talked through the idea that rather than being used just for home defense, the territorial army would be used overseas. So territorial divisions went first of all to India. The East Lancashire went to India. Of course, they served on the Western Front. They served on Gallipoli and and in virtually every theater. But three divisions of Territorials asked to volunteer to go to India on what they called imperial service. And the the implicit deal that the Territorials were offered, or were told that they were signing up to, was that Kitchener would send them to India, and that they'd be there for six or months or so, and they'd train, and then they'd come back to fight the Germans, because that was what they wanted to do. And eventually, uh, through the war, uh, the the equivalent of three Territorial divisions went, plus some battalions, so the equivalent of 41 battalions and about 29 batteries of artillery. And of those 41 battalions. Only four of them came back eventually, and not until really quite close to the end of the war, to serve in France. So these men went off not to fight the Germans, or they, they, they had signed up to fight the Germans, but in fact they ended up a long way from home in, in India. And eventually there were about 50,000 territorial soldiers, British territorial soldiers in India during the Great War. And uh, until this book, Terrys in India, came out, there literally wasn't a single book that dealt with their service. So it's an amazing hole. And in a country like Britain, which is virtually obsessed by the Great War, certainly members of the Western Front Association are, and yet here's an experience of 50,000 British troops which had never before been covered.
0: We have all these territorial soldiers in India, so what are they doing?
1: Well, I think the simple answer is, is that they guard things. And a lot of them spend a lot of time Mountain guards on treasuries and arsenals and barracks and yeah, generally uh, exhibiting the British military presence in India, because after the regulars had been sent home, there were 52 battalions in 1914, uh, all but eight of them were sent home. So virtually all the British uh, troops in India by the start of 1915 are territorial. So they're there uh, manifesting British military power. Initially, at least for the first year, they're also training because the, although the, the two of the divisions that existed before the war, many of their members had joined in 1914, and the 3rd Territory Division, the 2nd Wessex, uh, in fact, most mostly men who'd volunteered in 1914. So they spent a lot of time training, and in fact, they, they underwent what they called Kitchener's Test, which was a test that Kitchener had introduced when he'd been commander-in-chief in India uh, a decade before. So they learned to conduct field exercises and to march and, and to, to demonstrate their skill in musketry. And that equipped them to go overseas. But, of course, uh, at least for the first half of the war, they didn't. But they did do other things. I mean, they became responsible for India's internal security for the most part. So by 1917, you see territorials who are actually being called out to operate against communal riot. Um, they're making what they call flag marches through cities to demonstrate British military power. Um, and, and from 1917, they're also sending territorial battalions to fight on the northwest frontier, which, of course, is the, the most crucial uh, uh, area for the British Indian Army. And right through the First World War, there were tribal rebellions and, and revolts and uh, punitive expeditions being carried out. And by 1917, uh, as well as the regulars, it's the territorials who are on active service on the frontier.
0: So how did they react with their local communities? So obviously, for a lot of these territorial lads, it's probably the first time they've ever been outside the United Kingdom.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, they went to India um, really at the drop of a hat. You know, they, they were paraded one week, and literally a week or two later, they were, the first of them were on the boat down to India. So virtually none of them had been there before, except the very few old soldiers who were uh, senior NCOs in the territorial battalions. Um, and so none of them really had ever expected in their wildest dreams that they'd see India. Um, and they, they responded to it, well, in a variety of ways. I mean, for example, because many of them stayed there for the entire war, I mean, about eight battalions stayed in India for the whole war. And by the time they'd seen their fourth or fifth Indian summer and the, you know, the monsoons, they were pretty cheesed off with it. But initially, the territorials responded to India very differently to the regulars. Regulars basically kept themselves to themselves. Um, they, were, they, were, uh, they didn't interact with Indians except as barracksmen and servants or as vendors in markets and bazaars or as in brothels, for example. But the territorials, although they, they did interact in that way, they became, many of them, I mean, so many of them, in fact, that there are dozens of photograph albums where they, they recorded India. Almost no regulars took photographs, but lots of territorials because they were citizen soldiers. They either took cameras with them or they bought cameras once they were there. And they respond to India in all sorts of ways. So they, they write about it, they draw pictures of it, and they take photographs of it. And they write about it in their, their regimental and battalion journals. So the territorials, in lots of ways, uh, defy the stereotype of the, the brutal British soldier who, who cuffs his servants and, and shouts at them in bad Hindustani. I mean, a lot of territorials learned Indian languages. Uh, and made Indian friends. There are, there are accounts from the Indian side where these men who, who look like soldiers but don't behave like soldiers are actually conversing on station platforms and, and uh, sharing railway characters with them so, and playing football with them. So there's, there's, a, there's actually quite a, a vivid interaction between the territorials as citizen soldiers and the various communities of India.
0: And what were their sort of attitudes um, towards the local population? Obviously, they, they, they come from uh, England, which was a colonial power then, and India was obviously a colony. And how, what were their sort of views of India and the Indians throughout their service?
1: Of course, there's two communities in India. I mean, there's many communities, but there's basically two to take notice of. One is the British Indian community, who, is, of course, are English uh, from Britain. Um, but the Territorials respond to them... Uh, very ambivalently, and that they're forever arguing about how they're being received by the British community. And sometimes they're saying they're welcomed and treated warmly and brought into homes and clubs and, you know, institutes and churches, and they're feeling accepted. But there's also running alongside that an equally vocal countercurrent that says these people don't appreciate us. They treat us like regulars. They don't talk to us. They don't want us in their churches. They, they, they They don't invite us into their homes. So there's a a bit of an ambivalence about the British community. Now, with the Indians, the the First World War is a time when India goes through a very dramatic political transformation. So in 1914, the Indian National Congress is very respectful. It it, it welcomes the war as an opportunity to demonstrate their loyalty to the the Raj and to the Crown. And through the war, the Indian political class becomes disillusioned because it, it starts to not believe the undertakings that we expects from the British. And so at the very end of the war, in fact, 100 years ago this, this, this month, uh, there occurred the Amritsar Massacre, at which General Dyer, uh, Reginald Dyer, uh, opened fire on an Indian protest gathering, a uh, national gathering, and, and kills or wounds 1,200 people. Um, so there's this um, profound crisis. In British India's politics through the war. And the territorials are a part of this. Um, so uh, remember that although the territorials weren't firing at Amritsar, uh, there were territorials who were on the ground in the city who were um, part of the, the protests or meeting the protests before the Amritsar massacre. And in fact, Dyer's personal bodyguard were men of the 1st, 25th London. really brand off by the end of the war. When the when the crisis in Amritsar happened, they, they, they all, although they've been writing to newspapers complaining that they're stuck in India and they want to go home and they're fed up with this space and they're very disillusioned with their, with their military commanders, when the Amritsar massacre happens, they all realise that they've got to choose one side or the other and of course they choose the the British side and then they're part of the, the reaction and the repression that follows Amrista. So So there's a very ambivalent Relationship between the territorials and both communities of British India, both the British and the Indian.
0: And did any of the territorial battalions that were sent there actually see action during the war?
1: Um, they did. Although when they arrived, the British, in, the British Indian Army's high command is absolutely determined that these territorials are absolutely incapable of of fighting even the Turks. They say, uh, and that they shouldn't see active service. And that changes during the war because they train and they, they prove through inspections and exercises and maneuvers that they're capable of going on active service. And, and in fact, the first uh, territorial battalion to see active service is the 1st the World Shropshire, the uh, King Shropshire Light Infantry, in early 1915, which goes off to Malaya, first of all to suppress uh, or to, meet, to react to a mutiny uh, among an Indian regiment in Singapore and then to suppress the rebellion in Malaya. In the, in the and then the first four Hampshires go off to, to Mesopotamia. Uh, and then there's a whole series of, of territorial battalions which go off in active service. So, for example, the, the Aden field force, right through the war, always has one British battalion, and that battalion is always a territorial unit. And then British territorial troops are sent off increasingly to Mesopotamia, both as complete units, but also as drafts for the regulars and other British battalions that are in Mesopotamia. And then they, some of them, the first four Hanchers, they go from Mesopotamia and they go into Persia and then into Central Asia, so that they're actually fighting by 1919 in what's now Kazakhstan. And it's an extraordinary epic that these Hancher territorials go on. Um, as I say, four battalions go off to France. Uh, and other battalions go off in 1917 and 1918 to Palestine. So by the end of the war, about two-thirds of the territorials who were sent to India in 1914 have seen some sort of active service. And often men who are wounded or sick from Mesopotamia will come back to India, so they get rotated through other units. And the most extraordinary uh, active active service, but not fighting, is the, the first ninth Hampshire, another territorial cyclist unit, which at the very end of the war, in November 1918, goes off to Vladivostok in in eastern Russia and then gets on a train and is taken all the way through Omsk and all the way west to Ekaterinburg. And, of course, that's the the town where the Tsar and his family were murdered in 1918. And they spend several months in the middle of Russia. but uh, They don't see any fighting against the Bolsheviks. And, in fact, they're then withdrawn uh, through Vladivostok again. And they sail across the Pacific and then go across Canada by rail, across the Atlantic, and they become the only British battalion in the entire war to circumnavigate the globe. So the territorials do see a lot of service, uh, and, and uh, as I say, about half, probably two-thirds of them, see some sort of active service fighting in a, in a range of theatres, all because they've become a sort of an imperial reservoir of manpower from India.
0: And how did uh, territorials uh, look at their service in India after the Great War?
1: Actually, it's quite hard to figure out what they thought of it because they were basically ignored during the war because, of course, the whole drama of the Great War and the most important theatre was the Western Front. So even at the time, they were getting letters from their friends and families in Britain basically criticising them for having gone to India. I mean, not that they really had a choice, you know, Kitchener said in 1914, would you go to India, men?" And they said, yes. So it wasn't as if it was explained to them that by doing this, they'd get out of the Western Front. Um, But all the way through the war, they're they're imbibing this sort of guilt. And you can see in their letters home that they're both relieved that they're not facing the horror and the losses of the Western Front. But they're also feeling guilty about it. So when they get home, they're basically told they haven't done anything but Mount Dard for four years, and weren't they lucky. And they sort of internalize this so that there's, a, there's only a handful of memoirs published. There's almost no mentions of them in the regimental histories. You know, there's a, a paragraph that says in the, you know, the First fourth Battalion, oh, they were in India, but so we don't need to worry about them. So there's very little evidence of what the territorials thought about their service, except that right through the 20s and 30s and later, they start depositing collections of letters and diaries and these photograph albums and scrapbooks and... In their regimental museums, and and that's why this book is possible, because there is this huge series of collections across the regimental museums and county archives, mostly across southern England, because it's the home counties and Wessex units. There's a few more from Shropshire, and and what's now Cumbria, um, and and Wales, so the the Breconshire regiment, battalion of the South Wales borders, but basically it's across southern England. So these men, I think, were Quite, they were, first of all, very excited by what they'd seen and done. Now, this was a peak experience for them. They'd seen the Taj Mahal by moonlight. They'd visited the, the palaces of Delhi. They'd seen the Indus. They'd seen the Miltas frontier. Now, they, were, they were really um, involved in what they'd done. But nobody else was interested. But they deposited their, their collections, their letters, and their records in the Regimental Museum. And then I came along in the summer of 2015. And I realized that I was reading some of these things for the first time because nobody had written anything about these men. There had been a couple of books published in the, in the 80s, it's most basically family history. And these men, their stories were just sitting there waiting to be told. And there's some very poignant stories. I mean, there's, a, there's stories in families that families wrote to me um, where men would, would use Indian Army slang for years afterwards you know, so they talk about the breadwaller, or the postwaller, who was delivering the, the, the bread or the post. Um, and that their houses would have Indian souvenirs, because they'd all buy things like sandalwood carving and a bit of brasswork and the odd uh, trinket. And they'd be displayed in people's ha- in men's houses. Um, and, but the most poignant story, I think, was a, was a man called Francis Solomon, who was a, from the first, fourth piece of Cornwall White Infantry. And he had a pub in, in Bodmin, and every Sunday, he and his, his old BCLI mate would get together and have a drink together, and they'd speak army Hindustani to each other. And it's something that nobody else could understand, but it was something that they picked up in India, and they relived uh, this extraordinary adventure. When they went to India, they saw the Indian Mutiny Site, so they saw the Taj Mahal, and it was something special about their war experience. Now, of course, it was different from the men who went to the West. Front. And I calculated that if these territorials had gone to the Western Front, probably ten thousand of them would have been killed. And we all know why. But in fact, only well, only two thousand of these men died. About a thousand of them of illness and disease, in, and in India itself, and about a thousand in those other campaigns in and Central Asia. So, eight thousand territorials lived because they've made the. Fortuitous and completely random acceptance of Kitchener's offer in 1914, which ended up with him going to India. So it just goes to show just how random and um, serendipitous uh, war service can be.
0: And finally, Peter, where can people get your book from?
1: Well, the best place is the publisher's website. I must say that Hellion and co. are a fantastic publisher. They've done a wonderful job, I think, in bringing this book to life, and that they gave me as many images and as many maps as I wanted. Uh, and indeed, it's the longest book that I've ever written, and I've written 36 books. Uh, but this is the longest, and because it tells a story that has never been told before. So I think it's, it's a really worthwhile book, and if you want to uh, investigate it, well, you could always go to your local library, of course, uh, assuming there are such things these days. But the Hellion and Company website uh, is a terrific place to go, and, and you can uh, obtain it very readily. From a British publisher, so although I'm an Australian military historian, uh, British military history is my first love. British Indian military history is my first world, uh, and so I'm really pleased that I've been able to publish it with one of, I think, the best military publishers in Britain.
0: Peter, thank you very much for your time.
1: You're very welcome, Tom, I really enjoyed that, thank you.